Good morning, Crosspoint. Uh, today's scripture reading is from Acts 6, verses 1 through 7 in the CSB translation. If you have a Bible or device, I'd encourage you to turn there. While you're getting there, my name is Greg Herman. Uh, my wife, Bree, was supposed to be here but woke up not feeling well. We've had uh, some sickness go through our house here, so uh, you get me instead. Uh, we've been coming to Crosspoint for about nine years now. Seems crazy to uh, say that. Uh, but let's hear God's word. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Taman, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Greg. Uh, we will be in that passage this morning. Uh, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and get there. Uh, before we get into the text, here at Crosspoint, along with uh, churches around the world, uh, this Sunday is a, uh, a Sunday that we try to draw attention to the God-glorifying work of uh, orphan care and fostering and adopting, and so I appreciate Kent leading us in prayer in that, and also I just want to encourage you in a few things. The gospel reminds us that in Christ we've been adopted into a new spiritual family. It also reminds us that we've been called out of that new identity, called to a life of good works out of that overflow of the new identity. And some of that good work is around the kingdom work of uh, fostering and adoption and orphan care. We give thanks to the Crosspoint households who are active in this uh, area of the kingdom. Uh, those that are also praying through and awaiting, whether it's fostering or adoption, I know there are several households in that, and so it's a joy to be alongside you, to encourage you and to pray for you. Uh, also, some of you have thought about this and talked about it. Uh, if you need... Uh, brothers and sisters to walk alongside you, please reach out to me and I'll help you connect, I'll help connect you to other Crosspoint households who will walk well with you and, uh, and encourage you in that, in that walk of faith. As a church, we began an adoption fund several years ago through, uh, through Lifesong for Orphans out of Gridley, uh, incredible ministry doing kingdom work in this area. And so uh, that is a opportunity for you if you want to give a gift toward that fund, if you want to uh, support other families who are pursuing adoption, reach out to me and I can help uh, connect you in how to do that uh, and how to give toward that. Finally, the last ministry I want to draw attention to is Safe Families, Safe Families for Children. Uh, this is a ministry that's been around for 20 years. Uh, it's a national ministry. It's doing great work uh, toward children in need and toward parents who are in need of assistance and in need of encouragement. So you can Google that. You can uh, pursue that more info on the website, but also you can reach out to me and I'll help connect you. I know there are Crosspoint households who have served in that area of the kingdom as well with safe families. And so uh, these are all avenues for us to partner with uh, 
uh, one another as we pursue uh, the care of the orphan. All right, we're going to pause our Acts series after today and pick it back up at the end of December. And so the next couple Sundays will be standalone messages, then we walk through an Advent series in December, and then we pick back up in chapter 6 at the end of December. The New Testament church has faced challenges since it began at Pentecost in Acts 2, challenges that would hinder its ministry and mission to people. We've seen Luke, the writer of Acts, record these early on. Chapters 4 and 5, we see that some outside of the church are seeking to persecute the church. They stand opposed to the gospel and, and to the name of Jesus. Also in chapter 5, we saw the church face threats from within the church through the sin of those who wanted to make much of themselves. As one author called it, it we saw a sanctifying discipline occur with the judgment toward Ananias and Sapphira and their spiritual pretending. Those challenges, both externally and internally, continue to this day, 2,000 years later, because the human heart is the same. This is why the living and active scriptures continue to be relevant to this day. The church of Jesus Christ faces persecution from those who are opposed to the name of Jesus. And the church is made up of people who are saved and are being sanctified but aren't perfect yet. So we must reject the temptation of our sin and flesh and rather walk in the light with one another for our own sin can hinder ministry being done in the name of Jesus. Here in chapter 6, Luke records a story that illustrates yet another internal challenge that the young church faces. And again, this challenge continues to this day, and that is, the, that is internal conflict, conflict between people, one-on-one and groups of people. It is easy to assume that we should idealize the church in Acts, to assume it, it was perfect. It wasn't. We've talked about this at length throughout this series. In the same breath, we have much to learn from the church in Acts to be encouraged in our own ministry and mission in our day. The church in Acts was as in need of the grace of God and the spirit of God's empowerment as we are today. The mission hasn't changed, and neither has the missionary's need for the grace of God and the power of God in their lives. In these first six chapters, the church in Acts has grown from 120 to thousands. As some estimates say that here in Acts 6, the church is at 20,000 people in the city of Jerusalem. And so the church is having some growing pains. More people means more needs, means more ministry is needed, means more godly servant leaders need to be raised up. That's true whether you are the church of Acts and growing exponentially or you are church like our size of slowly and steadily growing over the years. As needs increase within the church, so do the opportunities for conflicts among people. We see all these themes as we turn the page into chapter 6. The expansion of ministry is happening in the church in Jerusalem. So how will the church walk through growing pains? How will they walk through internal conflict so that it doesn't divide the church, but rather the church would be strengthened and built up as ministry expands? We get to see some timeless principles in this text that translate to any church, including ours, here in our context. For as a New Testament church, we desire to walk in unity with one another as we minister to one another as the family of God. So verse 1 again. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. We read in chapters uh, 4 and 2 of how the church was active in meeting the needs of those within the church. 
And yet here it appears that some needs are being not met. The ball's being dropped and some widows are being overlooked or missed. So loved ones, even good, healthy, growing churches fail at some things, including the church in Acts, including this one. You already know that, though, I hope, hopefully. Needs are missed. People get overlooked. Communication breaks down. Things are forgotten. That's not to imply that, well, the church drops some things, so get over it. That's not to imply that. But rather, the church is imperfect, and at the same time, as that Spurgeon quote said a couple weeks ago, it's the dearest place on earth, an eternal family that's been brought together by a perfect heavenly father through the sacrifice of his son by grace alone. So then his, his adopted sons and daughters, his kids, are to walk with gracious feet with one another as we grow up into Jesus, who is the head of the church. He has commanded his people, his church. He's called us to love one another. John 13, 34 and 35. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the foundational command that a that a church is seeking to live out as it ministers to the needs of one another. This is the command that's causing the church in Acts to go, we need to grow in this area, this need of widow care. We won't see the apostles use the reality of imperfection as justification to ignore the widows. Rather, it's Jesus' words here to love one another just as he has first loved us that will compel the apostles to action. It should cause us to action as well. So there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So who are these two groups of people and how are they different from one another? Why are they at odds? The Hellenistic Jews were a group of new believers in Christ who spoke Greek and were more inclined to embrace the Grecian culture. Their family, their family lines have been scattered throughout the region outside of Israel in generations past away from Jerusalem. And so they'd begun to return to Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish faith. In their return, they'd heard the gospel and responded to it. And so even as these widows return, they, they return with very, very little. They need support. And because the Hellenistic Jews had often grown up elsewhere, they could not speak Aramaic, the, the native tongue of Jews living in Israel. This group would have already been naturally looked down upon by the Pharisees at the temple seen as second-class Israelites because they weren't from here. They were outsiders. And yet here they've returned, they've responded to the gospel that the church is proclaiming, they've gone public with their faith and baptism, and now they're part of this new growing church of Jesus Christ. The Hebraic Jews were a group of new believers in Christ who hadn't grown up elsewhere, but they were townies. They were from here. They'd grown up in Judea and Israel, they, they did speak the native language, and they were prone to reject any temptation to embrace the Greek culture. And so these two groups tended to look at one another and to oversimplify the Hebraic Jews, looked at the Hellenistic Jews as unspiritual compromisers. Like, you look too much like the culture. You've adopted too many of their ways. You're outsiders, and then vice versa, the Hellenistic Jews looked at the Hebraic ones as holier-than-thou, self-righteous insiders. Sound familiar? Those storylines haven't changed. They haven't, they haven't changed in the larger family of God because the human heart hasn't changed. 
We are as in need of the transforming grace of God as they were then. Now what these two groups got wrong is that they're no longer two groups. They were no longer two camps. They were no longer separate. They'd been joined. They're now in the same church, not by their efforts, not by their resumes, but by, their, by the sufficient efforts of Jesus Christ and his birth, life, death, and resurrection. Together, they were confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. Together, they'd gone public with their faith through baptism. Together, they were putting their faith and trust in Christ. What these two groups got wrong is that they were seeing their old identity, their childhood, their upbringing, their background. They were seeing that old identity as their primary identity even now as new believers in and followers of Christ. So when they should have been seeing their new shared identity in Christ as sons and daughters of the Father as the primary one, as the primary identity that would shape all the rest, including their upbringing, including their background. For it's out of that new shared identity in Christ that the church lives out the command to love one another just as Jesus has first loved us. If we resort to former and earthly identities to define us, to be the primary definition of who we are if we resort to that old creation identities. And there's a multitude of lists that we could go after. If we resort to that, then the, then the phrase that Paul gives in Ephesians 2 is that it leads to a dividing wall of hostility. It leads to a dividing wall of hostility within the church. But in the church... Such dividing walls are torn down for Jesus Christ is our Prince of Peace. His blood is what atones for and covers sin. So because we have peace with God vertically with Christ, we are then to pursue peace with one another horizontally in the family of God. There arose a complaint. There's no impl implication that the oversight of these widows was deliberate. More than likely, it was just a bad system. It was a poor administration. They were lacking servant leaders to own this area of ministry. And so when godly servant leadership is lacking, gaps in ministry occur. Needs get missed. This is true whether you are growing exponentially or not. Verse 2, the 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word to wait on tables. What is the meaning to wait on tables? Well, it's not the busting of tables. It's not the taking of orders at the widow diner. Rather, it is to wait on tables means to serve in, in the administration of the financial and the food provisions for those in needs. The tables refer to where that administration would take place. The idea of wait on tables is where we get the English translation of the word deacon, a term that will show up later in the New Testament. Here in Acts 6, Luke is not referring to this group as deacons. They, their, their team or their title is not given a formal name, although Magnificent Seven obviously is the choice had I been on the naming committee. But. So while Luke is not talking specifically here about the office or the role of deacons in the church, what we see here is the ongoing pattern in the New Testament church of servant leadership. Leaders who are willing to serve, to meet the needs of those in the church, and to expand the effectiveness of the church's ministry. I'm grateful for the various, the multitude of ministry leaders around Crosspoint who are willing to serve to meet the needs of others for the good of the church, the glory of our God. It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God. So what are the apostles not saying with that phrase? Well, they are not saying that they are above this job. They're not saying, well, we're too good for this. 
They're not saying, well, this job isn't necessary or needed. They are saying, if we add this, then we'll have to subtract something that is detrimental. Think of accounting terms. If you add this in this column, then you've got to subtract something in this column in order to remain balanced. And if we add waiting tables, that means we're going to have to subtract ministry of the word and prayer. It would hinder the health of the church. There are so many hours in the day, and that has not changed. And please don't believe the lie that technology has added hours to our day. It's only subtracted them. The church was never designed to function in a way where a small group of people do all the work in ministry of the church while a large group of people sit to receive and consume. Rather, the church is to function like a body, according to 1 Corinthians, where the various members have various parts and roles and where those, where those parts function together for the good of the church and the glory of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. The apostles are saying the same truth that Paul will write later in Ephesians 4, that leaders in the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers have been given to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. So the various leaders in the church are not to do all the work of the ministry, but they are to organize and equip and train and release the people of God to do the work of God as they're empowered by the Spirit of God. It's also the same principle that we see in the Old Testament in Exodus 18 when Moses is trying to do all the things. And his father-in-law Jethro says to him, what you're doing is not good. You will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you because the task is too heavy for you. And then his father-in-law just says this, you can't do it alone. So the apostles are not saying this is a less than role of service. Don't misunderstand this. For ultimately in the kingdom, we are called to be servants, to serve with an attitude and willingness to wash feet, following in the model of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings who humbled himself setting an example for his people to follow, especially in starting with leaders in the church. Are there leaders and authority in the church? Yes, yes, of course. Are such leaders who serve in authority above washing feet? Absolutely not. Again, they should set the example. They lead the way by bowing their knee first. I'm grateful to serve alongside servant leaders here in this local body, elders, staff, ministry leaders, community group leaders, next generation leaders, and on and on, brothers and sisters in Christ who lead with a bent low, humble, foot-washing mentality. It's a clear evidence of his grace. Do we always get it right? Uh, no, we don't. But the grace of God is continually transforming and growing up his people one degree to another. And he's faithful to finish that work that he has begun in us. So the apostles determined that the burden to preach the word and be directly hands-on in the ministry to the widows was too much for one group of leaders to accomplish. It's often in these kind of moments when gaps are created in ministry, when there are more needs than servant leaders, that the Lord raises up servant leaders to be active in the body of Christ, to expand his body's ministry. Verse 3, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. The overriding emphasis in the New Testament when it comes to leadership is that of character. And it matters in all roles and positions 
in the church, not just those in the elder, pastor, overseer, shepherd category, or not just in those who are paid by the church. Oftentimes, if leadership is viewed through the flesh and not the spirit, then we put the emphasis on leadership as, can they get things done? If it's seen through the flesh, we go, does that person look like a leader? Leader, Do they speak like, like a leader? Do they have the presence of a leader? Do they have a sound track record, a successful track record? We look at the outside when the Lord looks at the heart. King David, again, was not an outward-looking leader. There are oftentimes in the church, specifically it comes down to, oh, you've done that task before? Great, do that here. Oh, you know books? You know financial stuff? Great, do that here. Oh, you're a leader in the community? You're a leader in your workplace? Great, be an elder. Christ-like. Do they love the Lord? Are they bowed to Jesus? Are they seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? Are they about his glory and not their own? Christ-like godly leadership is the drum that the New Testament beats over and over as it relates to leadership, including here in Acts 6. We are fools if we ignore that. We are fools if we ignore that. Does competency matter? Yes, of course. Does chemistry among a team matter? Yes, of course. But if people are placed into leadership who lack a growing, godly, humble character, it will lead to devastating and destructive results in the life of the church, let alone the church's witness to the world. Because the church begins to then follow a pattern of the world rather than a pattern of the kingdom they've been brought into and such a storyline is on repeat in our world right now. So this is why the apostles say full of the spirit and wisdom, full of the spirit, meaning they're sensitive to the spirit of God. They're led by, controlled by the spirit, not by the flesh. Wisdom, meaning a growing spiritual maturity, a posture that is seeking to live by and is shaped by the Lord's wisdom above any earthly or fleshly wisdom. And a good reputation, meaning these men will be known for these virtues. Like there should not be a moment in Jerusalem where the person in the church or outside the church, they hear, oh, Stephen, oh, Philip, full of wisdom, full of the spirit, really? And then what follows is a story about their unfaithfulness or hypocritical, deceitful life. There should not be that moment. Oh, they're in the leadership? Oh, that, that's what leadership in the church looks like? Oh, okay, I didn't know that's what it meant to follow Christ. They should have a good reputation. It should be a consistent reputation. Not perfect, but a consistent reputation. Thinking about this situation, the apostles are seeking to raise up servant leaders who will handle the distribution of financial and food resources to those in need. In order to do that in a God-glorifying way and for the good of people, they will need to be led by the Spirit, full of wisdom. They will need a heart that's been transformed and seeking to love others in the same way that Jesus has first loved them. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So the apostles come back to the reality that they have to keep first things first. If they skip over these roles of prayer, and word, if we skip over these, then the church stops being the church. It becomes, in this case, just another social organization trying to do good and meet the needs of others. 
which is not the commission that the church has been given by Jesus. The commission was to go into all the world, make disciples of Jesus, baptizing, teaching people to obey all that Jesus taught. It was to go into the world as spirit-empowered witnesses, showing and telling of the gospel. The church is a supernatural living family, a supernatural living body and flock that's only grown globally over 2,000 years. And yes, it is to be active in good works, ministering to the poor, caring for the orphan, caring for the widow, being a light in the darkness. But all those good works flow out of people who have been shaped and transformed by the word of God and living out their personal relationship with Jesus Christ in community with the family of God, together confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. The apostles must remain committed to preaching the word and to prayer. Because remember, the church in Acts, it's fragile. It's susceptible like, a, like an infant. It's susceptible to disease and distraction. It's susceptible to getting off track from their heavenly mission and to neglect the word and prayer early on. It would derail the church's ministry. It would derail their mission. It would crumble the cornerstones that they're being built on. I love that prayer is included there. I don't think you and I would naturally put it there. And not just preaching the ministry of the word. I, I can tell you some of the most encouraging times, whether it be as elders or staff, is, spent, is time spent in prayer. Praying for you all, praying for one another, praying for those yet to be reached, confessing our worship, our adoration of who the Lord is. Andrew Bonner, a, a Scotland pastor in the 1800s, wrote this in his journal at one point. It was challenging to me as I, I read this in preparation for today. But he simply said, too much work without corresponding prayer. Too much work without corresponding prayer. That's a good word for us. No matter what your vocation is. No, mat no matter what you do during the week. And how we serve at church and how we lead and serve at home in workplaces, in schools, in our community. Let's serve and work with prayerful hearts, with much work, with much corresponding prayer. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. So all these men must have a good reputation for the whole church is pleased by their selection and all seven names are, are Greek names, which is the background of the Hellenistic Jews that are feeling overlooked. So this is a wise move by the church in making sure this group is served well. Stephen and Philip will both be mentioned later in Acts. Stephen's story is where we pick it back up at the end of December in chapter 6. Both of their ministries of Stephen and Philip will include widow care here, and also extend beyond. Stephen will preach a message that will get him killed in Acts 6. Philip will be an evangelist, including reaching the Nigerian eunuch in Acts 8. Nicholas was not a Jew by birth, but at some point in, in his life had converted from Judaism. Now he'd left that, that man-made religion and turned toward Jesus Christ and confessed him as Lord and Savior. The other four we don't know much about their names, besides their names being given here. What we do know from this group is that their service in the church was not just a practical one. It was a spiritual one. They were not just filling a seat or checking a box or handing out supplies to widows. They were not just doing a task. Remember, for the Christ follower, all of life is worship. 
including our service within the church. So, so don't believe the lie that, well, the spiritual stuff on a Sunday morning, it happens here on the platform. Or it happens back there in Sun Chasers teaching next generation. Or the spiritual stuff in a church, it happens in front of the scenes, but not behind the scenes stuff. I mean, the behind the scenes stuff isn't, isn't worship or spiritually building the kingdom. Don't believe such lies. Or someone asks you, well, where do you serve in the body? And then you answer with, well, I'm just a, and you fill in the blank. You're not a just to anything. That's absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Brothers and sisters, you and I are not a just to anything. Rather, Ephesians 2.10 says that followers of, of Christ are God's workmanship, his craftsmanship. They've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. So whatever you do, as Colossians says, do it unto the Lord as spiritual offering, as a worship unto his name. Whether it feels small or, or large, whether it's seen or unseen, whether it's with people or with paper or of the multitude, whatever you do, how you do it matters. How you do it matters. It's important in the kingdom. It's glorifying to, the, to our God when it's done in his name. Verse 6, they had, they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The, the image of the apostles laying hands on the shoulders or heads of the seven in prayer is one that communicates authority. It communicates trust. Collectively, between the twelve and the seven, they are submitted to the authority of, of the Lord. They are confessing that in prayer. It also communicates that the apostles are entrusting authority to the seven to lead this area of ministry in a way that would glorify God and be for the good of his church. This moment of prayerful commissioning over servant leaders is a beautiful one in the life of a church. It's a moment to thank God for providing people who are full of the spirit and full of wisdom and who are willing to serve in whatever capacity the Lord has called them to. It's a moment to express our trust in the Lord and for the servant leader being prayed over, I can tell you it's a moment that humbles you. Reminds you it's not about you. It's about the king of kings. It's about his kingdom. It's about his mission, his name. So what is the result of a church that works through relational conflict? That works through hurt and pursues unity? That hits up against growing pains and prayerfully seeks the Lord's wisdom in that? that raises up servant leaders and expands the reach and health of the church and ministry to people, well, verse 7 is an example of a potential result. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God is going out, spreading like Jesus said it would in Acts 1.8. And the disciples of Jesus are increasing greatly, including a large number of a large group of priests. So while some priests in the Jewish faith are still opposing Jesus and ministry being done in his name, see Acts 4 and 5, some priests are repenting and believing the good news. Friends, opposition to the name of Jesus doesn't have to be the last chapter in the story, including in, in your life. Opposition doesn't have to be the last chapter. And to those of us who are Jesus-following missionaries, those who we are witnessing to, seeking to to reach with the gospel, we pray that opposition isn't the last chapter of the story, but rather reception to the good news of Jesus Christ. Despite all the opposition, 
the persecution the young church has faced, the shock and the startling story of judgment in Acts 5, the growing pains of a church on mission, the conflict of one group rising up against another group, the, the pain of some who are feeling overlooked, the need for more servant leaders, despite all these external and internal challenges, the Lord is still building his church. The Lord is still doing the work. He's still accomplishing his mission. His, he's still shaping and transforming his people more and more into reflection and representation of him. Because the work of the Son of God is being accomplished through the unified people of God who are empowered by the Spirit of God. All for his glory, all for his name. Lord Jesus, you are the head of the church. You are the cornerstone upon which our life, the life of your church is built upon. Thank you that you first loved us, that you pursued us, laying down your life for us while we were still wandering and rebelling. Your love is, is lavish, it is sweet, it is transforming. Help us to love one another just as you have loved us. Help our love for one another to be an outward witness to the world. May you bring people to faith and trust in you because of how this church loves one another. May we walk worthy of the calling we have received in you with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Thank you, Father, for raising up Christ-like servant leaders in your church. Thank you for their faithfulness, their availability, their teachable hearts. Help us to be full of and led by your spirit. Help us to rely upon your heavenly wisdom and not upon our own. Help our reputation to be a God-glorifying one and consistent in all realms of life. Spirit, may you expand ministry in this place, raising up servant Christ-like leaders in the generations ahead. May the word of God continue to increase and spread and lives be changed as a result. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 4, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining, just as each one has received a gift. Use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.